Hi, everybody. Welcome to what's promising to be a very entertaining <laughs> November 30, 2018 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Ducity. Thank you very much for joining us. We all hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Let's get a quick take on nationally syndicated Washington Post columnist George Will writing about Colorado turning from purple to blue and what that means for the National Republican Party. Patty Cahoon from Westward, uh, pretty impressive to see in nationally syndicated print all about Colorado, but do you think it's a warning that the national GOP will heed? Well, no, I don't. And I don't think the Colorado GOP is going to heed it. This party has been like the Donner Party over the last 10 years. Republicans <laughs> have had no chance in Colorado. But remember, be careful what you wish for. In 2013, when we had all the houses in the governor's office, we had a recall. Now, if Weld County makes good on its threat to maybe leave Colorado again, we will be a little more blue than we are now. But Things can switch quickly. This is a fickle and very independent electorate. I completely agree. It is a fluid situation, to say the least. Ross Kaminsky joins us, talk show host at 63 KHOW. Ross, you had the opportunity to talk with George Will this morning on your program. What do you have to say about this? What do you think about the article? I, I thought it, in, it was interesting that on the show, George Will wasn't quite as, as fatalistic about the prospects of the Republican Party in Colorado as he was in his article, and as I am also, I think... I think the Republican Party is in a lot of trouble here, not really because they're worse than Republicans in other places, but because this state has changed so much. And uh, in George Will's article, he talked about 80% of the voting population being along I-25, where the Republican Party is moving to be more of a rural party. You combine those two things, it's going to be a big uphill climb to, for Republicans to win back here. Indeed, Eric Sonnen, political analyst. Uh, George Will, at one point, was considered... Maybe not a voice of the Republican Party, but certainly a, a wise sage to look to. And, well, if George Will said it, then we can look at it. He's been, I guess, put back into the wilderness lately, for at least by many in the Republican Party. Do you think his warning will be heeded? Well, I think he's put himself into the wilderness. Sure. He, left, uh, he left in a public way the Republican Party a year ago or sometime within the last year in protest to Trump, as have many other more intellectual Republicans, mm -hmm. uh, shall we say. I don't know if it would be fully heated. I do not see Colorado being a targeted state in the 2020 presidential race, assuming Trump is the candidate for re-election. The money that used to come to Colorado uh, on the Republicans' behalf will be going to Arizona, will be going to Nevada, will be going to other states. Colorado will not be in play, in my mind. Uh, flip side of that is Cory Gardner will still be a headline story in 2020 as an incumbent senator and a seat the Republicans have to defend. Uh, so we will be targeted in that regard. But to Ross's point and others, uh, our days as a purple state have waned and are, are, you know, just a question of what shade of blue we are. Susan Green, editor at ColoradoIndependent.com. We we're very glad you're here. And just Colorado Independent, the, the websites.com, not just Colorado Independent. Uh, Susan, what do you make of George Will's column and his estimate of what Colorado is as a sign for the rest of the nation? Uh, well, first, the column read to me like he really, really wants to move here, and he has major Colorado <laughs> jealousy, you know? And uh, I think the column told the rest of the country what we here already knew, which is we are not the typical flyover state. And uh, there are always these sort of coastal pundits who are uh, making generalities about the flyover states. And for those who are maybe more typical flyover states, I think George Will is picking up on something bigger, which is um, they're not as... Uh, 
ideologically simple as uh, they're estimated to be by those pundits, and that politically they're changing as well. So, you know, I, th I think those kind of basic generalities about the whole middle of the country um, being a bunch of dolts um, and not sentient beings who can't understand what their best interest is, um, is pretty stale. The Denver City Council approved a safe injection site pilot program this week with a 12 to 1 vote. The state legislature must approve the plan for it to go into effect next year. Patty, we've heard about this plan possibly coming up. This is the first time we finally see the vote. What do you think about the odds of being approved officially at the state legislature this year? Well, it came close, or at least was discussed in the legislature last time, and now we've got both houses are Democratic. So it's very possible that it will be approved. When you come down, especially through downtown to this part of town, you realize just something has to be done on so many levels with people experiencing homelessness, many of whom have mental health problems or addiction issues. At this point, just chopping away at every single aspect that you can and trying something, I think, makes sense. Here with you had 12 out of the council members vote for it. The only example we really have is Vancouver and their mixed reviews coming from that. But I think in Denver, we have to do something, and I think it's a start. If it doesn't work, we can always backtrack. Ross, we've seen the growing problem of the opioid crisis in Colorado. I mean, I think there was a piece uh, this week. It wasn't about the crisis so much, but it was about just uh, sanitation in Denver. I think it was the, the Nine News was going around and seeing the, the filters they're using around some of the uh, uh, different gutters in Denver. And it's almost like they pull it out and you see evidence of I mean, we guess what you call like illegal sewage of all the different needles and things sticking out of what would usually consider just trash in Colorado. Is this going to be an answer to that problem that we're seeing throughout Denver? Well, first of all, well done with the illegal sewage. Uh, second of all, <laughs> you know, we, we've seen a lot in the news uh, about San Francisco and what's happened there with the homelessness and the drug use and the, all the stuff on the sidewalks and the noodle, uh, the needles, noodles and all that. And we don't want to become that. It, it's interesting with my audience, mostly right of center talk radio audience, um, more against it than for it, but a lot of them sort of grudgingly saying, we got a problem. We need to think about something here. One thing that I think my listeners appreciate about at least the the ordinance from Denver during the pilot phase, at least, is that it's privately funded. And I think among the more conservative people, which not necessarily majority of Denver, but in my audience at least, uh, I, I think that helps them a little bit. The idea that it's it's private people rather than government just giving money to drug addicts as they might see it if it were a government program. I'm in favor of it, uh, and, and, and I also like the idea that they're gonna, they'll do it as a pilot. I hope the legislature allows it. Eric, is Denver going on on a political limb here with this program? Oh, a bit, but it's certainly not the first time. And per the previous lightning round question, as the state turns more blue, more liberal, the, the limb is a much more solid limb, uh, shall we say. Uh, Kevin Flynn, former uh, companion of ours around this table, was the lone no vote on Denver City Council. I thought some of Kevin's comments were interesting and thoughtful, as well as Krista Kafer had a column in this morning's Denver Post, also someone who joins us uh, around this panel. This strikes me as the classic case of an issue that uh, has in conflict two very closely held and important values. On the one hand, you have public health and compassion and everything else, safety that goes along with that. On the other hand, 
you have is 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 this smart and do we do we in a way incentivize this or do we give it license and do as we have seen with uh, somewhat of our emphasis on homeless programs uh, do we just create more of a problem and become a magnet uh, I think those are important issues to debate. I would anticipate it probably goes through the legislature. You have a Democratic Senate. It died in a Republican Senate committee last year. Uh, I think we will see this pilot program. I'm interested. It will be the first of its kind, government sanctioned, in the United States. I'm interested to see how it works. But I remain slightly skeptical, only slightly so. Susan, did, Denver, did the Denver City Council make the right call? I, I think so. I mean, I, I think... Um, the alternative is doing what the feds seem to suggest to do, which is nothing. I mean, there is some scientific ambiguity about whether this decreases um, use or whether these are really effective, but there's absolutely no data to say that it increases use, and there is data to say that people who have attended these clinics and used these services, which, by the way, also include substance abuse counseling for those who want it, and also a space that's not shaming, um, a safe space. And in many ways, the only safe space some of these users will occupy in their day. Um, and so there's no evidence that um, you know, nobody has died in any of these clinics around the world, and many countries do have them aside from Canada. Um, the critics of these uh, programs remind me of the critics in the 80s and 90s of condoms, um, as if the uh, n no sex was a viable option to safe sex. Um, and by opposing these clinics, you're not going to do anything at all about the opioid crisis. I agree with Patty, which is you have to attack it on many, many levels, and this is one small way to attack it. Governor John Hickenlooper officially submitted legal questions to the state Supreme Court last week. The governor is requesting the court for an opinion on the conflict of the Gallagher and Taxpayers' Bill of Rights amendments and how that might impact the future of funding with different districts like firefighting districts. Ross, why do you think the governor made this request now? He's on his way out of office. It was, uh, I think, a couple days before Thanksgiving. The timing seemed odd. Well, it uh, lets him deal with something, lets him hand it off to someone else rather than him having to deal with it. But it's also a very serious problem, and we are seeing the adjustment through Gallagher of the of the residential property tax rates really getting ratcheted down over the last few years with values going up, and it is it is turning into a big problem. Uh, and I and I think there is a conflict between the two, but here's the issue. What I don't want to, to have is a situation where we feel like a court may decide one of the most important tax-related issues. This is something that really must be decided by the proper combination of a le the legislature and a vote of the people where required. And I think if we end up in a situation where the state Supreme Court says you must do X because we decide this is how these two amendments relate to each other, I think that's uh, almost uh, destabilizing for Colorado politics. And, and I hope they say something like this is a problem, but we're not going to solve it for you. Eric, uh, A, do you think the Supreme Court in Colorado will answer the question? Because they don't have to. Uh, and if they do, what do you think they might say? To your question A, I have no idea. 
whether they will take it or not. More often than not, I'm, none of us, I believe, are uh, attorneys around this table. Uh, more often than not, they don't take the interrogatories. Courts like to have live cases with live, a live dispute um, uh, with live parties uh, at play here, as opposed to just what are called interrogatories, which is an advisory opinion, more or less. Uh, so I, there's, as you pointed out, Dominic, there's no requirement that the state Supreme Court accept these interrogatories or respond to them. I have no idea if they will or not. If I was bet, I might bet the not side of that and wait for a, a, an actual dispute to surface and come up to them. It is certainly a problem. Up until very recently, uh, I owned uh, a home here in Denver and a very small office building that, in terms of market value, were probably the same almost identical market value and I paid five times the property tax on that office building as I did on our home. It is a very real problem. I saw it up close in terms of the impact uh, of Gallagher. Good for John Hickenlooper in some respects for doing this but uh, the question comes to mind is why wait until the 11th hour, 58th or 59th minute? Uh, he's had eight years here and really in terms of what he called the fiscal thicket, and I think there have been other words that he's used to describe our fiscal dilemma, I think you have a hard time pointing back to the last eight years and say that there have really been any answers or that he has really led the fight in any real way. Susan, is the Gallagher Amendment as we know it long for this world? Uh, probably not. Um, something is going to have to untie this so-called Gordian knot that is, or fiscal thicket, um, <laughs> as others call it. The um, action taken by Hickenlooper, though, is political theater. Um, asking a question of a body, uh, of a judicial uh, panel that is often often denies hearings on actual cases, and this is a hypothetical issue or actually just a constitutional legal issue, um, is not taking action. And I agree with Eric, um, certainly at the very 11th hour, this is sort of a very half-hearted Hail Mary, um, I think, by Hickenlooper to just appear to be addressing an issue that he took office promising to address. Um, and this Gordian knot, which is the combination of both Gallagher, which you asked me about, and the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, Tabor, uh, affects literally every area of state spending and every issue that people care about, transportation, education, all of it. And um, I think it's actually sort of a cynical move, frankly, that um, this is how he takes action by asking a question. And I don't agree with you, Ross, that it's, it would be destabilizing. You can't undo Gallagher um, by an answer from the Supreme Court to an interrogatory. Um, that's not how our, our state works. Patty, why this request now uh, at this stage of the game? Well, it's definitely late in the game. This fiscal thicket existed before <laughs> Hickenlooper took office. Let's not forget Amendment 23 is also in this but the fiscal thicket has gotten thicker over the last eight years. There's no question. To add to what Eric said, I know people who have small businesses, own their property, and they are having to boot out tenants they've been giving market value rent for who just can't afford it. These people can't afford their buildings anymore. Property taxes are so high in Denver on small commercial businesses, it's really affecting 
not it's affecting what businesses are able to stay here and that's a big problem um, the issue on Tabor and the firefighters which is the reason that really came up and I think um, Hickenlooper was responding to some criticism in the press when he sent this to the Supreme Court because fire districts of all people who need money now in Colorado you just have to look at California and realize these are they are hamstrung and sooner or later our fiscal thicket will catch fire and they will not be able to handle it so we're gonna have to handle it one way or another people have talked about coming up with legislative fixes or putting it on the ballot we haven't seen it there's been talk about that for decades I think we will see something in the next two years the Denver Public School Board announced on Thursday a single finalist for the open superintendent position, the current interim superintendent, Susanna Cordova. Cordova has spent over 20 years in the district, first arriving as a bilingual teacher. Eric, what do you think of the sole finalist and the fact that she is a sole finalist for the DPS superintendent position? It's been a weird ride ever since Tom Bosberg announced uh, his, his departure. I think this process has ill-served a lot of people. I think it has ill-served Susanna Cordova, for one, just as a clarification. She's not the interim superintendent okay. at the moment. but The, the deputy but, super, but right? The deputy right. super, right. I, I forget you. the exact title. Um, I think she's been ill-served by it, but I think the, the, the constituencies of Denver Public Schools, voters, taxpayers, students, teachers, and others, have all also been ill-served by it. I have a whole lot of friends on the Denver School Board, so it pains me a bit to be too critical. But this process has, has spun to a point where you don't want it to spin. Uh, the press this morning said that two other finalists had dropped out in the last week. I'm told by very strong sources that they have lost four potential finalists over the course of the last few weeks. They might not have been formal finalists, but four people that they were very interested in, all from outside Colorado. Uh, it is amazing to me that the district of Michael Bennett and Tom Bosberg, which was nationally known as a very progressive, reform-oriented, interesting things happening kind of district, is now not able to attract a single one of those kinds of candidates. I think it's a combination of a perception that the board maybe doesn't have the vision or the commitment to really go continue aggressively down that path and the fact that we have board elections coming up what is it eleven months from now next november that could tip the balance on the board so i think there are a whole lot of candidates out there saying why do i want to move my family across the country when the whole uh... majority of the board could tip here soon Susanna cordova is a fine person whether she is the imaginative bold leader this district needs remains to be seen and most importantly there really is no choice at this point. She is a sole finalist, and that ill serves uh, all the constituencies of DPS. Susan, what do our viewers need to know about the situation that may not be in these first headlines we're seeing about the situation? I think that DPS has an optics problem. Um, Susanna may well be the right candidate for this job, and she has said, and, and I think this needs to be noted, that just because she worked with and for Tom Bosberg, she is not Tom Bosberg. She is a much more collaborative leader. That said, in a district formerly led by Michael Bennett and Tom Bosberg, both of whom um, were perceived as having been anointed to this job, what this looks like is just simply another anointment. Whether that's true or not, that is the optics of this. And I think the the Denver public school system didn't do any, itself any favors when 
on Thursday, just hours before they announced that Susanna was the sole finalist, John Youngquist, the principal at East High School, uh, posted an op-ed in Chalkbeat, um, sort of talking about the perfect leader for DPS, the perfect superintendent. Um, and he was describing Susanna. So, I mean, what this looks like is a very carefully crafted anointment, whether it is or not, and I'm not saying it is, that's what it looks like. And there's so many parents so disillusioned by the way this district has handled certain issues, including issues of race um, and um, gaps in education having to do with uh, economic situations that I, I, I can't believe they couldn't have handled this in a different way. Patty, it seems that uh, this historic point, the, the, what would be the first Latina woman to lead uh, DPS, is somewhat sullied because there's no one else to consider. There's not really a race to win if you're the only one running. Uh, perhaps I'm selling it short. What do you think? Well, to echo uh, Susan and Eric, it is really tough for her now because she's not coming from business the way Bennett and Bosberg. She's not a white guy. She's an educator. I mean, she came in as a bilingual teacher. She's a very different person. But right now, all anybody's seeing is it looked like they just crowned someone from inside. We don't know why everyone else pulled out, but I heard the same thing that Eric had, that there were good candidates who wanted no part of it in the end. We're going to have two weeks of he neighborhood hearings, um, and I think it's going to be tough for Susanna, but it'll see, we'll see if she really has the stuff to be the DPS superintendent maybe during that. Ross, it's the biggest school district in the state. It gets most of the headlines. What do you think about what we saw on Thursday? Um, I actually I agree with what, what everybody said here. To me, the, the appearance of, of this process, especially if you take somebody who might be looking at it without digging too much into the news, right? You know, some just reading, oh, there's one finalist that either looks like uh, a corrupt process or an incompetent process, and neither one of those is something that I think Denver Public Schools wants. Obviously not. I do wonder uh, whether there is anything they can do to you know, hold it open for a little longer and say we still would like to talk to a couple more people or whether, as Eric suggested, maybe there's some other things going on where that's just not possible for us now, which is an even bigger problem than the problem they have with one finalist. Time for a very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, there's some more unfinished business that Hickenlooper might be able to solve before he leaves, leaves office. Four years ago, he made an apology to the descendants of the Sand Creek Massacre on behalf of all of Colorado. The descendants of the Sand Creek Massacre, the Cheyenne and Arapaho, are not asking for Mount Evans to be erased. What they want is people to be educated about what happened. And one of the moves is they want a monument on the state capitol grounds. They don't want the Civil War monument, which calls Sand Creek a battle, taken down. They want a monument to what happened. Hickenlooper's been working on it, hasn't gotten through yet, but he's got a few more weeks. Let's see if we can't get it done. Ross. Clarence Moses L. spent 28 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit after the victim of a brutal assault and rape uh, named him when she was in an opiate-induced dream in a hospital after she couldn't identify the attacker. And then later on, the police destroyed, they say it was accidentally, DNA evidence that could have exonerated him. And uh, Attorney General Cynthia Kaufman is fighting tooth and nail against Clarence Moses L. getting compensation from the state for 28 years of wrongful prison time, and I think that's uh, an outrage. Eric. How about the Democrats uh, in U.S. Congress recently caucused 
It is the same leadership troika that they are recommending. We'll see. Nancy Pelosi still has to get through the floor fight, but Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, Jim Clyburn, they'll all see their 80th birthday over the course of the next year or two, the, the next term of Congress. In a country that is crying out for something fresh and new and different, and in a Democratic Party that is motivated by a whole lot of youthful energy at the moment, this is the best they can do. Uh, I'm sorry, not. And then, then related the whole Diana DeGette little attempt to unseat Jim Clyburn, which was ill-fated from the beginning and went absolutely nowhere. Susan. I'm going to go back to this Cynthia Kaufman disgrace. Uh, this makes my blood boil. She, uh, her office faces a trial for compensation that they cannot win in February. They cannot win because this man is innocent. And I know this because I worked on the story for 13 years. And what she does as she's leaving office is so raunchy and lacking grace and truth because she's just repeating the same lies about his case that Mitch Morrissey did before her and that Beth McCann did before her. And it's very notable that the AG's office and the Denver DA's office are both named defendants in his civil rights lawsuit, which is, of course, he has a civil rights lawsuit. They robbed him of 28 years of his life. Time to say something nice, the bumper sticker edition. Patty. Happy anniversary, 30 years for the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District, which has really changed the landscape of this town. Ross. Uh, thanks to the Denver Broncos, led by Von Miller, donating more than $200,000 to a group that's going to give ballistic vests and helmets and wound trauma kits to law enforcement officers. Eric. going here even before Ross and, and Susan's disgrace, but how about incoming Attorney General Phil Weiser, who has made clear that he is going to settle this case, the compensation claim from Clarence Mosesell. And I know you need a bumper sticker version, but hats off to this person here, Susan Green, who has made this case for, I don't know, Susan could tell you how long, a decade or longer, and has been the champion of this man's liberty. Here, here, Susan. The Community First Foundation and Colorado Gives Day, which is Tuesday, um, they do a huge service for all the, the nonprofits in this state, including the Colorado Independent and the amazing donors who give to it. Here, here. That's a wonderful segue because before we go tonight, I would be remiss if I not if I didn't join Susan reminding you that next Tuesday is indeed Colorado Gives Day. It's a wonderful way to support all of your favorite nonprofits in Colorado, including the Colorado Independent and. Colorado Public Television. Uh, it is easy. Just go to coloradogives.org. A few clicks and boom, you make a key difference in Colorado. Thank you so much for your support. For everybody here at CPT12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night.